Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. I'm going to get right at it. I've just finished recording this episode, and it runs over the one hour limit that I arbitrarily set for the show a long time ago. So I'm making a brief intro here because I simply didn't want to edit anything out of my deeply inspiring conversation with PepsiCo's chief design officer, Mauro Porcini. Suffice to say, Mauro's thinking on leadership, culture, design, the future of humanity, you name it, they're all enlightened. Mauro Porcini is a renaissance man of sorts who is convinced the cultural focus of every company must shift to the needs and wants of human beings, including the needs of our planet, our society, and of everything else that matters to us as human beings. As you're about to hear, the greatest of all of these needs, of course, and he's certain too, is love. And as will be the case with many of the guests that we have coming for you this season, Mauro Porcini is a true embodiment of the lead from the heart ideal. Let's bring him on now. Welcome to the podcast, Mauro. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for having me. It's late Friday night for you where you are, and I'm just honored that you would do this. I'm really looking forward to it. We just had this wonderful conversation pre-recording that uh, I wanted to stop because you were saying so many wonderful things. So really looking forward to this conversation. You know, I've never asked a guest this question before, but in reading your book, I thought this is the way I want to start this. So I'm wondering if we can start the conversation with you giving us an overview of your typical day. I guess the big question I'm asking is, what's the scope of a chief design officer? I think this might be a great way to sort of center our audience in the impact that you have in your organization around the world. Yeah, let's start saying that there is not a typical day. <laughs> and this could be a nice thing, but also somehow a very destabilizing thing, depending on your character. I love it personally. But essentially, overall, if I think about my typical month, let's say, there are multiple different kinds of interactions with different set of people. I work with my teams, and I work with my teams in defining the future of the company, defining the future of the industry, understanding, in the specific case of PepsiCo, how the food and beverage industry will evolve in the coming years. And now our brands today are evolving, thinking about the future, how they should behave today, what kind of products we should have, what kind of communication, what kind of way of interacting with people we need to redefine in different kinds of platforms, in digital, in the physical world, in the food service channel, in our case, or in every place where we appear with our products and brands. So one set of work interaction is with my team. Then there is the interactions with the leadership team of the company, with my peers, the head of R&D, of marketing, of sales, of finance, and working with them to make sure that design has the right seats at the table, that design is integrated in everything we do as a company, especially because design is a new capability for the company. Now it's been 10 years, it's not that new anymore, but still is one of those functions that we are incubating in companies like PepsiCo. And then there is the external world. I try to get out of the office, digital or physical, whatever is the office nowadays. And I try to be out there talking with people using our products, talking with customers, talking with a variety of different partners that can inspire me. 
in different ways. I travel to meet my teams around the world, but also to speak at conferences, to connect with influencers and designers in different regions of the world that once again can give me new ideas and can inspire new ways of doing things in a company at PepsiCo and in our industry. You, just to tag on to that, you mentioned that you had an interview on LinkedIn with McKinsey talking about your new book, and it had a massive number of downloads. So where's the interest? This is fascinating to me. I think you said a million downloads? Yeah, a million impressions for that repost of McKinsey with this interview. It's a lot, and, and many followers also in my platforms. And, and I think what is resonating in that platform that is a professional platform is that, first of all, I mix the more traditional professional contents with contents that you don't find in the platform usually. You know, is how my life is influencing me. I posted the pictures of the baptism of my daughter, for instance, but always with a message connected to the things that happen in my private life, a message that is relevant to me as a designer, me as an executive, me as a leader inside an organization. Because at the end of the day, you know, we are human beings and work is just a component of our lives. And many things that happen outside of work influence the way we are at work. So I think the first thing that happened in my LinkedIn platform is that I merged the two dimensions because they influence each other. The second is that is authentic. You can really, if you read my post, you see that they come from me. There is nobody in the corporate communication office of PepsiCo crafting them for me. You see that starting from the fact that they're full of grammar mistakes because English is not my first language. So by definition, they're authentic. And because there is a point of view all the time, even when I post about projects that we do in the company, there is the most of the time, a message connected to that project, a message about how we run the project or what kind of leadership there was behind that kind of result or what kind of impact that project could have in society or on the planet or in the way we work. So originality, having a point of view, having a perspective that is yours, unique and authentic, I think is something that resonates with people. And then this focus on content that is all about people, human centricity, building value for people, coming from an executive of a big corporation that most of the time told to you in a very corporate kind of way, trying to celebrate, you know, what the company does through brands, initiatives and projects of any kind. You see that there is there a human being. It could be your friend. It could be somebody that you know with a point of view and a real authentic care for people and a passion for what he does. Why do you think authenticity, being a real human, is resonating, to use your language, so strongly right now? What's happening? Because I think we live in a society where in the past several years, probably in the past two decades, one of the biggest problems is the lack of trust for anything any kind of institution, lack of trust 
for the government, lack of trust for companies of any size, but especially for the big ones, and lack of trust even for the religious institutions. You know, something mm-hmm. that were those institutions were building stability in society in the past century, the beginning of the past century in the past. Today, in a way or the other, we're being, we feel at least, that we're being betrayed by so many of these institutions, of of these entities in so many different ways over the years. And so the more we show that behind these big names, no matter where the name is, these big brands could be the brand of a government, the brand of an institution in any kind of field, it could be anything. Behind these big black holes, there is people. There is people, again, like the people you know, people with their flaws, people with their dreams and their desires. And when you are able to show to the people listening to you or interacting with you that you care and you're trying to do the right thing and you're willing to admit your weaknesses and mistakes and flaws and then celebrate your successes and what is working on and putting them out there and and telling people, well, this is what I did right and this is what didn't work out. And what I did right, I want to amplify it even more. And if you want, you know, you can embrace this message. You can amplify that kind of message as well. When you have all of this, you know, you essentially immediately start to trust again those products, those institutions, those brands behind those people. And I think people out there today are looking for authenticity because there is this general lack of trust for anything. You don't want to be betrayed anymore. You know, you want people that love and care and you can trust. That's really brilliant. Thank you. I'm glad I asked that. Former PepsiCo CEO Indra Nui said of you in her preface to your book, She said, for Mauro, leadership is the secret sauce that transforms design from a concept to creation. Those who have it all, who combine vision and execution, innovation and productivity, kindness, respect, and optimism are deemed unicorns. And while some might argue that unicorns are born and not made, Mauro takes a different approach. He believes there is a unicorn in all of us if we nurture three key talents. Number one, embrace an entrepreneurial spirit. Number two, be a person in love with people. And three, enable others to succeed. So what stands out for me, at least, of course, is the idea that you intentionally seek to hire people who love other people. I mean, just inherently rare. The whole premise of that is rare. So tell us why you believe this is an essential component of your success as PepsiCo's top designer and also, Mauro, to be an effective leader. Yeah. Well, let's start from the fact that to surround yourself with people in law with people, so people that are kind, nice, um, empathetic, caring, is good. You know, you create a wonderful working environment. You go to work, you're like, wow, you know, I love the people I interact with every day. So that's the positive thing of this. It's, it's not the reason why you do it, else all, every company would have this kind of people. For sure, it was personal reason at the beginning why I was doing it. I had the fortune of building my teams from scratch, both at PepsiCo and at 3M before, for the 10 years before in the company 3M, the tech company from Minnesota. So I had this luxury of building my teams with this kind of people. At the beginning was an instinct. I just wanted to be surrounded by this kind of people. Then I realized the value 
that this kind of approach was bringing to these companies and to my team in particular. First of all, you build a team of people that really care about what they're doing. People in love with people means that your priority is not to grow the business of the company. Your priority is the one of creating something extraordinary for the people you serve, something that impacts the world, society, the planet, the people you serve in a variety of different ways. You are driven by creating something really good for them. This is something pretty natural for a designer. You know, you go to design school and they teach you to observe people, understand their needs and wants and dreams, and then create something that solves those problems or fulfill those desires in the way or the other. So you're driven by this idea of creating something extraordinary for them. And then they tell you, well, by the way, you also need to make money while doing that. And so they teach you business and marketing and economics. And then they tell you, well, whatever idea you have, it needs to be feasible. And you learn all the world of technology and and, and material science and so on and so forth. I just mentioned the three pillars of innovation or the three pillars of design thinking, desirability, understanding people, feasibility, understanding how to leverage technology and manufacturing capabilities to create the ideal product at the right cost, and then finally viability, all the world of business. But we are driven by this profound passion for creating something valuable for those people. If you go to business school, they teach you something different. They teach you how to grow a business from A to B. They tell you, well, you have this business and you have a series of levers that you can use to grow this business. And they tell you, but, you know, one of the levers is the product. You can create an extraordinary product and grow your business. But the reality is that you can grow your business even without touching the existing product by leveraging distribution in a different way, driving productivity, managing supply chain in a smart way, and so on and so forth. So actually, if you are business leader, you go to a company and you don't touch the product and you grow the business exponentially, you're a business star. You're amazing. If you're a designer, and let's say that the product is okay, it's mediocre, it's not ideal, it's not extraordinary, but your product is like this, competition's product is like this, so there is this dynamic balance amongst products in the same industry. So if you're a user, this is what it is. That's what you get when you go to the store, physical or digital store. So even if your product is mediocre, if you grow that business, you are a great business leader. If you're a designer, and your mediocre product is generating a lot of money for the company, you're still a mediocre designer. You still (laughs) cannot (laughs) brag with your friends. You still are unsatisfied. So what I'm trying to say is that this idea of the people in love with people, of creating something extraordinary that really build value for society and for the people you serve is pretty natural for the design world, is less natural for the business world. But in a society in which the traditional barriers to entry, they were protecting that mediocre product I was mentioning earlier, are crumbling down under the winds of globalization, social media and new technologies in general is more important than ever to build within these companies this culture of the people in love with people outside of the design world. We need business leaders of any kind in these organizations to care before anything else about the people that they serve. Essentially, you can translate this in this idea of 
really focusing all your life 24-7, you know, all your energy and your passion in understanding how to create something extraordinary for those people. Forget your competition. Forget the profitability of that idea. You start with a passion. You start with a focus. You love, you know, that. And then you think about all the other variables. You put human centricity before anything else. Then you think about viability and feasibility. And you want to make that organization, the product, the brand profitable and grow the business. But everything starts with that profound passion for doing the right thing, creating something valuable for society. Today, this is the most powerful competitive advantage you can have. This is something that was not necessary 20 years ago. It was a nice to have. But if you had the right barriers to entry, you didn't need this kind of approach. Today is a necessity. You're fundamentally reversing the order and the priority that we've always traditionally believed was the right way to drive profitability, drive product success. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, well, they don't teach you to love people in design school. So this is something that you fundamentally have as a human being, which makes you so unique. But then you want to hire people who have that same attribute. How do you find those people? What are you looking for? How do you discover that when you're interviewing for people? What are the hallmarks of people that love other people? Well, (laughs) it's the most difficult part of my job. And by the way, I don't have a solution. I wish I had. I have a few tactics that I use. First of all, I many, many years ago, I think it was 15, 16 years ago, I decided to write down what were those characteristics. And then for a few months, I tried to pressure test them, you know, observing myself, the people around me, people in other parts of the organization. When I came with a final list of all those traits that I thought made sense for me and my organization, I gave them to HR and our recruiters and I asked them to use them as filters to find those kind of people. But no matter you had these filters, and this is the the reason why you're asking me this question, it was still difficult to understand in one hour conversation if these people had those kind of characteristics. So I realized that I needed to make them as public as possible, first of all, in a variety of different ways. I wrote a paper for the Design Management Institute Review talking about these characteristics. I embedded them in every single speech I made from 15 years ago to today. If you look at the conference, you know, you can find many of my speeches online. I always, always close those speeches with these characteristics. Or sometimes I open them, it depends on the audience or the topic of the day. But essentially what I'm saying is that I started to make them as public as possible so that the people that were coming to us and were part of the interview process were interested to join the team knew already what kind of skills I was looking for. So they could self-eliminate, you know, eliminate themselves if they were thinking, well, this is not really the kind of culture Mm -hmm. I like. Mm -hmm. I also started to embody them in everything I do. And the full clarity, you know, those skills that I identified many years ago, then I pressure test them over years and years of practice and I evolved and then tweaked them and I arrived to a final list of 23 characteristics that then you can find now also in the book. And all these characteristics, having clarity about all of them, helped me practice in them in a very conscious way. 
like thinking, okay, I need to become the embodiment of them, knowing that nobody can really have them all. You know, mm-hmm. it, it mm-hmm. doesn't mean that I have all those 23 characteristics. It means that I do a conscious effort every day to better myself in these 23 dimensions and become also somehow an example. So in some cases, pushing some of these gifts, these characteristics, these traits to the extreme to make very, very clear to people what I need. And on the base of this, the recruiters that I work with internally to the company, externally to the company, the people I network with, they, over the years, they get a better understanding. They got a better understanding about what I look for. And then in their network, when they come to me, presenting me people, they know if they know those people, they know what kind of characteristics I look for. So the most of the time they present people that somehow are aligned to the, the kind of expectations. Then there is a little bit of empathy. Let's put it this way. You know, you're in front of a person, you try to feel the person, you try to understand the person. I also always ask questions like, what do you do in your free time? You know, because I want to understand how curious they are. You know, do they travel? What do, what do you do when you travel? Mm-hmm. Uh, I ask questions about how they manage the teams, how they face roadblocks and adversities to really understand, you know, the resilience, you know, a variety of different characteristics. And then I always have people within my own team that I know are different from me, that are, have a different perspective mm-hmm. on people, on life. I have them interviewing them. These people know inside out what I look for because they they are themselves those unicorns. And so collectively, we see things, you know, each of us see things that the other don't see. You know, I know that I have so many blind spots. I am unable by myself to really understand holistically a person. But when I use all these people around me, then we start to have a better view and a better perspective on the kind of talent we're looking for. As I'm listening to you, I just think there's such a brilliance in repeatedly communicating your cultural values, knowing that from that point forward, the people who want to belong to that are going to be knocking on your door. You don't have to go knocking on doors. I love that. And I, of course, also totally admire the idea that you choose to be the example. So to use your language again, you want to be the embodiment of everything that you're looking for so that there is congruity and sincerity and authenticity. And all that is really hard when you have goals to meet and all the different responsibilities you have, and yet you're very centered in that. So I totally admire it. I want to go to your book. You say that, I'll quote you, our world is radically changing and is forcing us to innovate as never before, both in our personal and professional lives, with a new humanistic focus on people. We are entering a new modern renaissance fueled by the reborn humanistic necessity of putting people at the center of everything. So what does this mean? How do you know it and how will it affect the future of workplace leadership? Well, Let me make a very concrete example of what I've been witnessing all these years that forced me to think in this way. Essentially, today we live in a world where anybody out there can come up with an idea and get easy access to funding for that idea. Either going online and you go to platforms like kickstarter.com 
to crowdfund your idea or just because there is this proliferation of investment funds and incubators and entities of any kind looking for the next big idea to build the next startup. Kids out of college today don't dream anymore to join a big corporation and work there for life. The most of the time they dream actually to build a startup, to sell to the big corporation or to become the next big corporation of the future. So it's more plausible today for people to have great ideas and find money to fund those ideas. Then the cost of building that idea, the cost of manufacturing is going down, driven by new technologies and globalization. So you get the funding, it costs less to produce stuff and it's faster. And then you can go straight to your end users to sell them your ideas through e-commerce platform and to communicate about it through your social media platform. So all of this, this is happening in some industries more than in others, but in general is happening everywhere, you know, in so many industries. Maybe not in the pharmaceutical one, maybe in the automotive is lower, even though now we see the proliferation of new brands and new organizations that are jumping on this new technology, the electric vehicle technology. So it's happening in many, many industries, for sure in food and beverages all over the place. So this is creating a very simple situation, simple to, to define and decodify. Essentially, I know if I work for Pepsi or Lays or Quaker or Gatorade, in our portfolio, I know that I have millions and millions of people out there right now thinking about how to take down my brands, <laughs> how to enter the category and compete with us. It's clear. This happened, you know, also in the past. The difference is that today they can do it. <laughs> they can develop an interesting drink, maybe, you know, sustainable, healthy, very beautiful, cool, meaningful to people with a great purpose. They can do whatever they want and leveraging the digital channels, they bypass traditional distribution and they go straight to their end users. So this kind of situation is forcing both the big companies and obviously the small ones to think just about one thing, understanding people, understanding their needs, their frustrations, their dreams, their desires with existing products and thinking about a new product that could solve some of those desires and needs. And when I say product, it's a product with a capital P, meaning product, packaging, service, communication, the overall experience you have with that product and brand. And so you may be really good with your product. You may have a very iconic brand and people love the product itself, but maybe the service is not good enough well, the startup will come in exactly from that door. Or maybe the service is great, but your product is not sustainable enough. Well, they will come in from the door. Or maybe everything is fine, but it's not beautiful enough. They will create something that is beautiful. They will come in from the door. This is what happened with Uber, with Airbnb, coming in, leveraging new technologies to disrupt completely an entire industry. So if it's not happening yet in your industry, it's about to happen. Mm -hmm. And this is forcing, therefore, this new focus on people. And so you can't be anymore there with your product, looking at what your competition does and just incrementally tweaking your product on the base of your category and industry and therefore your competition. If you really want to have any sustainable growth in time, you need to have an innovation culture. Innovation on the product, but also innovation in the way you communicate, you build experiences, you know, innovation in 360 degrees. And this culture needs to be 
focus on human centricity, focus on people. You need to have inside your organization creators. The leaders of the future are creators themselves, are ethnographers that observe reality 24-7. They don't commission the work to an agency. And after three months, you get from the agency, you know, a research about your target audience that nobody reads, you know, these big books with all this information that nobody reads. Hmm. Well, you still want to work with those agencies. You're still going to get all your data and information, but they need to match and mix with your observation, your culture, your ability to understand where the world is going and all the time always thinking about how you can better your product with the capital P without waiting for somebody to do it for you, especially because today that somebody is probably not going to be your direct competitor that is very predictable, but it's going to be the next startup that is coming in from some place that you didn't expect and is going to totally disrupt your business. In the absence of a whole lot of data that I'm sure you have access to overwhelmingly, I bet, how can people listening, how can we all learn more about people? What are some rudimentary but effective ways of learning how the world is going? Well, a couple of answers. The first one is do what the philosophers used to do since the beginning of time when philosophy was invented. And essentially, ask yourself why all the time about anything and everything, but not just one time. You know, if you observe a behavior of somebody in front of you, ask yourself why they're doing that. And when you have the first answer, ask yourself again, why? And then why? And then why? And again and again and again, until you arrive to the root cause that drive people to behave in a certain way, drive people to purchase something, to fall in love with a trend, to behave in a certain way, also in a working environment with you. Ask yourself every time what drives people. This is a wonderful way to force yourself to understand the real motivation that drives all people all around the world. Now, what you will find out when you start to do this kind of questioning is that at the end of the day, we're all driven by what Maslow decodified in these pyramids of needs. The beginning, we need to be safe. And we, you know, we have our safety needs, our physiological needs. We need to survive. <laughs> That's the basic. Then immediately after, we need to connect with others. We need to love others, receive love back, express ourselves within a society, define ourselves within that society. That's how we use brands often. We buy brands to say something about ourselves in connection with others, to define ourselves. And then you go up above that. And there is all the word of transcendence, you know, something bigger than you is the word of purpose. So we are driven all the time by all these kind of needs. And so understanding people, easy way is ask yourself why. Use the Maslow pyramid as a filter because at the end of the day, we're always driven by certain kind of needs. So you can really Literally, once once you start to ask why, 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 you're right to the root cause of a behavior and then you're like, oh, this fits there in the Maslow pyramid. And then try to, this is something I always love to do. I read books. You know? And so over the years, I read many, many books that helped me understanding people in a different way, with a, in a more profound way. The books of Daniel Pink, for instance, uh, you know, a variety of them. I don't remember all the titles, but they've mm -hmm. been very enlightening. The beautiful, beautiful book, Emotional Intelligence of Daniel Goldman, or 
the psychology of everyday things and emotional design of Norman. There are many, many books with different kind of angles. You know, you don't need to read psychology books. They can be books that talk about human beings in connection with products, experiences, brands. And there are so many out there. I just mentioned a few, but they mm-hmm. help me so much, so much better understanding the basics. But at the end of the day, then you always go back there. Why? And then you already have those filters in the Maslow pyramid. Do you lean into nonfiction or are you informed by fiction? Is there like a genre that you focus on most? Well, I I read all kinds of things because sometimes I just try to detach from the world and just fantasize and, and just relax. And so uh, in that case, I love fiction and, and there are multiple authors that really bring me in a different dimension, make me really detach. But then there are other periods, other moments where I, I need to read something that gives me something meaningful, new information, new learning that I can apply in my job or in my life in general. Mm-hmm. So it's a mix of different kinds of things. Yeah, it's really a mix. And it's the same in music, for instance. I go from jazz and classic music to the most commercial pop you know, hits. I'm not faithful to a specific singer or genre. I go where my heart takes me and <laughs> my playlist often you know i have all these playlists in spotify and 85 percent of the content of this playlist come from me listening to a song on the street i shazam it and it goes in the playlist or spotify automatically with ai generates a weekly playlist on the base of your preferences and it's pretty good. And in this weekly playlist, I often, you know, find a good 20, 30% of songs that I really like and they go in my, in my personal playlist. But it's literally, I love something, I get it. And yeah, that's, I follow my heart so much. <laughs> well, I wish I had the pod bell to ring for that. That's, that's what we're all about here. I want to make sure that we have time to talk about unicorn innovators and You have, we talked about this a minute ago, but you have this clear list of traits and talents that you're seeking. And it's just a discipline that I love. And when I was reading your book, I was thinking, this is how I think. Like this is, I mean, I hope that other people reading your book would resonate just the same way. But it's what Wendy Smith and Marianne Lewis talk about in terms of both and thinking. So you're you're looking for people who have it all. And so the first is this idea of entrepreneurial gifts. You want people who are intuitive and analytical, people who dream big and take risks, people who are cautious too. They're visionaries, experimenters, executors. So like, are you crazy? Or do these people exist? Or can we cultivate them? Can we cultivate them in ourselves? I want to give you two answers to this because you say something very interesting that often people interviewing me about the book don't say or don't mention is this idea of and, you know, both characteristics. You want to have both extreme of the spectrum. And I go back to the world of philosophy. Many, many years ago, thousands of years ago, the world of philosophy already understood that moderation was really something important in life. I think many people understand this also in, in, you know, in their personal journey. Understanding the extremes, and that's very useful, 
but then understanding also how to build balance and synergy, leveraging different point of views and then finding something that is balanced, but also original and unique and innovative. But this idea of balance, but a balance that is not mediocrity, is not just uh, mm-hmm. the annihilation mm-hmm. of the two extremes, but is really leveraging both in a dynamic way, I think is one of the key points of the characteristics of the unicorns. And the second part of the answer is they don't exist. Unicorns do not exist. Plato will say that they exist in the world of ideas. They exist out there in the world of perfection. This is what the unicorn is. By the way, the fact that the unicorn is uh, actually a fantasy creature that we imagine, you know, flying in the sky, you know, in a, in a world that doesn't exist is perfect because unicorns do not exist. And the key message of the idea of the unicorn is that you need to be aware of what are the key characteristics that you need in life and then spend your life trying to learn and better yourself and grow in all of these dimensions. Because at the end of the day, the reality is this is one of the key traits of the unicorn, this passion for learning and growing and knowing that you will spend every single day of your life, all the way until the last day, bettering yourself. We are like raw material and we start to carve out the material, the stone, to take out this beautiful sculpture that is us, is ourselves. You know, Michelangelo said it in a wonderful way towards the end of his uh, journey, of his life, of his career. He started to create the non finiti, the non finish, this beautiful sculpture that are halfway finished. And essentially you could see the raw material, the marble, unfinished, and then the figure that start to grow out of the material. And his point was, we are there in potentiality. I mean, the figure, the sculpture is there in the raw material in potentiality. And then my role as a sculpture is just to remove the raw material to take out the figure out of the stone. And this is my metaphor for us as people. You are unicorns in potentiality. At the beginning, we're raw material, we're pure energy. We have all this potentiality. What we need to do is to take the sizzle of life and experience and learning and with the sizzle, carve out the material to define exactly what kind of unicorn we want to be. And to do that, we need to have benchmark and references. We want to look at other people. We want to learn from them. But then we need to, uh, to have our unique point of view on life, on everything. So we want to leverage our interactions with other people to learn. And then we need to develop our point of view. And for me, having these 23 different characteristics now for more than 15 years there, it's been like a compass, understanding what to invest on. And some of them are more obvious, you know, the ability to think big and the ability to execute and proactiveness and courage in these kind of enterprises is obvious that great leaders need to have certain kind of traits. But there are others that are less obvious that people don't talk about too much in this kind of organizations and in the world of business and beyond in general. I talk about, the, for instance, the power of kindness, the power of curiosity, the power of respect, the power of optimism. So being aware that these characteristics were really important, they were really making the difference for me and spending every day of my life investing in them, making sure that 
you know, when eventually was not too kind, uh, to be aware of it and try to be kinder. When at the moment I was like down and oh gosh, things are not going in the way I wanted them to be. Understanding that optimism is key if I want to succeed in life and be happy. But by the way, for me, success is happiness is not material success or anything else. You know, that awareness is the first starting point. And that's why I talk about this also in the book. I wish that in schools of any kind, starting when, you know, you're very young, all the way to college, they will teach us on top of all the different notions that you can imagine from literature to mathematics to physics and anything you learn at school. I would love schools to teach us what is really important in life is this mindset, is these 23 characteristics of the unicorns. I would love for my child to go to school in a few years and learn about the power of kindness, learn why you need to be optimistic, why you need to be respectful, why you need to be curious. What is the value of this? I would love, you know, teachers that really share best practices of optimism and kindness and how these create value for them as human beings. And then, by the way, the positive message in a society that at the end of the day is always driven by business and financial goals, all of this drives also business growth, financial growth. So this is the beauty of this world we're living in right now. We often talk in a negative way about many things that are happening right now. But one of the positive is that this extreme competition that is forcing any kind of reality to refocus everything on the human being is forcing these kind of companies to have also certain breeds of human beings that leverage those characteristics to be as efficient, as productive, as good as possible. So, I mean, I'm thinking about the whole idea of unicorns not being real. And then I start thinking about some of the language that you're using about kindness and empathy and compassion you're implying. But then you look at our society and when we get stressed, those are the very things that we toss aside. This isn't a moment for kindness. We're in a moment right now where we don't really have a recession. And yet in anticipation of a recession, Scores of companies now are letting thousands of people go. And they're not looking at alternatives. They're not saying, hey, maybe we could like stop hiring or cut bonuses for the next six months until we get through the dark side or shared pain. Everybody take a couple weeks off unpaid. Just sit in a room and come up some creative, kind, compassionate, thoughtful, caring kinds of strategies where people don't have to lose their jobs because some CFO is saying, hey, man, we're not going to hit our quarterly numbers. So I'm wondering, just in the course of working at PepsiCo, if the philosophy that you're talking about in relation to design, are you imbuing this in the thinking of your organization, your CEO, your CFO? Is this message getting through? Even I'll add, Mauro, that is it outside of Pepsi that's even hearing this? Well, I think companies behave in a certain way that is not just driven by the culture of the company itself, but is driven by a series of expectations that the finance world, because you were talking about lays off and connected to financial performance and recession. So there are expectations from Wall Street and from the world out there that are consistent and common to all these companies. So, you know, you may have 
any kind of culture, but at the end of the day, you also need to understand how to manage the world out there. So I do think that PepsiCo, under the leadership of Ramon LaGuarta, is very human-centered. During the pandemic, a series of actions and behaviors and initiatives that he had were by definition human-centered. And in multiple surveys that we did in the company with the hundreds of thousands of employees that we have, this human centricity came out very visibly. You know, the perception that the company and, you know, Ramon himself had a kind of approach came out in a very visible way. Can you give us some examples? Well, so we I know. mean, I'll give you a very concrete example. So I am in New York City and my significant order goes to Milan for Fashion Week. And the COVID was in China back then and it was arriving to Italy. And it was just starting in Italy. We, it was not clear yet that it would have been, you know, the second big epicenter of the pandemic. But there was the news that there were a lot of cases in Italy and everything. So my wife's come back in New York and I received a call from HR telling me that the day after I shouldn't go to work because my wife was in Italy. <laughs> And this was like no company would have, you know, was taking these kind of decisions. And the idea was, well, she come back, maybe she brings the virus with, with her. She could infect you and you're going to infect the rest of the team. And it was like, wow, inside myself, I, was th I thought, well, it's a little bit excessive, maybe. I mean, it was really the beginning. It was a moment in which I was receiving messages from a series of people I knew here in New York telling me, oh, my God. I'm so sorry this is happening in Italy and implying that the care system in Italy was a disaster and explicitly saying that this cannot happen in the U.S. It's never going to happen in the U.S. I still have these messages of people that were telling me, well, it will never happen in the U.S. So there was still that kind of mindset. So here we are. My wife goes to work the day after <laughs> because she works in, a, in another company and I don't. And then one week later, we shut down the design center in New York City, essentially before many other organizations. Uh, the lockdown of New York came weeks later. So this is just, just one small example, but practical enough because we all had to deal with COVID, of how the company moved super fast on this and understood the risk and put the safety of people before anything else right away. And this kind of behavior came out in so many different decisions that Ramon and the executive team of the company took over those, those years of COVID. And people felt it because they knew that closing, you know, an office, closing a plant, it was not easy for the company. Obviously, they were putting the interest of the people before anything else. This is just one example. But So there is that. But again, then you need to deal with certain expectations from the street, from the shareholders, and you need to understand what is the right balance. And that's why through the book, through conversations like the one I'm having right now with you, it does become a little bit of my mission in life to spread this idea of people in love with people, of caring, of love, of the power of love to drive business value beyond PepsiCo, leveraging every platform I can. And by the way, leveraging the PepsiCo platform, they give me access to so many people around the world to spread this message. And I met so many leaders that have this kind of approach. I'll name one, just 
To give you a very concrete example, Joe Gebbia, the co-founder of Airbnb, is a friend of mine. The guy is such a loving leader. I mean, he's, mm. he think about purpose and and he care about his people. And now he left Airbnb and he's creating his own new venture. But in general, I'm thinking, Joe, talk more about the loving part that you have and how it helps you arriving to where you are and how important it is to do something like this. I, and I could mention many more leaders that I know that they have this, but they don't talk about this. It's just who they are, right? And so I my invite to any person, any leader of any level, by the way, you don't need to be the CEO of a company, any person listening to us right now, think about how this ability to be in love with other people, to care about other people in your working environment, in what you do through your products, through your brands, through your activities of any kind, how this is adding value to you, to your organization. And once you identify that value, talk about this. Talk about this. The more ambassadors we have of this kind of love, the better it is. You know, if you want to synthesize what people in love with people means, what is the love, you know, the, the subtitle of the book. Essentially, there are three dimensions of love. Is the love for the people you serve, so it's really being driven by creating extraordinary products, brands, solutions, experiences for the people you serve. Is the love for the people that surround you? Is your teams, your peers really working together with kindness, with trust, in full synergy to drive things in a very productive way and with great quality in a very competitive kind of market? And then finally, is the law for what you do. We didn't mention this today, but mm -hmm. I think it comes up just by the way I speak about what I do, mm -hmm. the passion. And we mentioned actually Daniel Goldman, emotional intelligence, in the book of many, many years ago where he defined what emotional intelligence is, he mentioned a research that was done in schools all across the United States where they identified a series of gifted kids mm -hmm. that were really, really good in playing the violin or in mathematics and a variety of different things. And they've been following their journey from school to life for many, many years. And they essentially divide them in the people that made it and many others that didn't succeed. And many of them actually ended up being homeless or in very precarious situations. And they found out that the most of the people that succeed had a common trait. They had this emotional intelligence developed in a very high way, you know, that was very well developed. But there was one trait specifically that was common to all the people that succeed and the one that didn't have. And is the love for what they were doing, the passion for love what they were doing. And the reason is very simple. If you love what you do, you will go the extra mile. You spend all your life doing it. You think about that 24-7. You will practice and practice and practice and getting, you will get better and better and better compared to others because of this. But you, if you don't love what you do, you're not going to spend so much time and so much passion and energy and resources in that thing. And practice is so important in everything we do every day. But everything starts, once again, with a love for what you do. I have to tell you that when I read your book, and I have limited time, so 
generally it's Sunday. I get on my bed and I just read my guest book cover to cover. And then I start putting notes together and questions together. And that's basically how I spend my Sundays. So I spent the whole Sunday with you. And I just had this, I mean, this guy just absolutely loves what he does. Like every bone in your body, your heart is completely into your work. So it completely bled through just about on every page. So when you were talking earlier about being the embodiment of what you talk about, that very much rang the bell for me. So bravo to you, Mauro. I want to stop here for a quick moment before we ask Mauro to go through the heartbeat round with us. So everyone, we're going to be right back. Thanks to you, the Lead from the Heart podcast currently ranks in the top 1.5% of all podcasts in the world, and it's been heard in 163 countries. If you'd like to contact Mark about speaking for a live or virtual event or consulting for your company or team, you can contact us directly at markccrowley.com. Now, listeners to the podcast can win your very own copy of Mark's book. Mark will sign and inscribe a copy of Lead from the Heart so you can give it to your boss or manager or keep it yourself. Simply connect with Mark on LinkedIn and ask to be entered in the drawing. Winners will be notified directly and announced on LinkedIn soon. And one of those winners will also receive a free 30-minute one-on-one Q&A Zoom session with Mark. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. And now, back to the show. Meryl, I'd like to take a quick break from our discussion and transition into a podcast tradition we call the Heartbeat Realm. And to give us a little more personal insight into the biggest influences in your life, I'm going to ask you a few more personal questions, but these require a quick, instinctive, and brief answer. So in other words, answer them in a heartbeat. Are you game? Yes, let's do it. There we go. Your greatest superpower? Love. Other than Pepsi, a company whose design inspires you? Um, Apple and Gucci. The first app on your phone that you check in the morning? Instagram. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life? Go to Africa. A cultural value every organization should have? Kindness. Prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true? Society is going to get better and better and better. We're not going to go backwards. There is no way. One thing people would be surprised to learn about you? That I used to be a semi-professional soccer player. People see me as the cool guy, but they don't see me as a sport, you know, person. But wow, sport was my life. Quality that you think derails the most leadership careers? Lack of kindness. <laughs> person alive or not that you'd most like to have dinner with? Leonardo da Vinci. Something you'd really like to see changed in the world? I wish we're going to have a more sustainable society. Mindfulness or meditation practice? Yes or no? Absolutely, yes. Self-improvement you're working on right now? Well, I'm learning guitar. Oh, good for you. And most useful piece of advice you've ever received? Um, When you pitch something and you think you're getting traction, ask the people in front of you some form of commitment. And you will find out that most of the times, nine times out of ten, the traction you are getting, you are thinking you are getting, is not there. So <laughs> ask a sacrifice, ask a commitment, so that you can find that ten percent of the people that are with you for real, and then work with them. I call them the co-conspirators. 
That's very cool advice. And I love your hope and optimism. So thank you for going through this with me. Thank you. I want this to go on forever, but because it can't, I have this question that I really wanted to ask you. It has to do with branding. But because you're you're so focused on design for others, but you're also a really unique character, like you've built your own brand. And so I think somewhere in your book, you say that you think conformity is a derailer because it means that we're leaning into safety and we're not taking appropriate risks or dreaming big and everything we all believe in. So before you go, give us some advice on building our personal brand. Well, first of all, I think it's so important to have a unique point of view on things. So as I said earlier, it's important to listen to others, to connect as much as possible with the world out there in different ways. It's through dialogues with strangers and people that you know. It's through travels and trips and not going just from one location to the other, from one business meeting room to the other. But once you're there, get lost in the city and try to observe people and be curious all the time. And then reading, 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 physical books online. Today we have access to so much information and knowledge. So getting knowledge but then collecting all of this and mixing it up with your own recipe, with your own perspective, build your unique point of view, I think is very important. That's the starting point, having a content to share, having a point of view to share, and then share it. Don't be shy. Share it in different kinds of ways, with different kinds of media, what is what makes you comfortable. I personally use social media from the very beginning just because I love sharing. You know, at the end of the day, writing a book, speaking at conferences, doing interviews and conversations like the one we're having right now, and being active in social media is all the same thing, is this passion for sharing. Some people have it. You know, I have this passion. Some people don't. But if you think about building your personal brand, sharing is important. Storytelling could be the key word. Have a content that you define through your personal point of view and then build stories around the content and share it in an original, authentic way with the rest of the world. Being aware that this is not just about you. If you do it, because you have this need, if you do it because you love it, if you do it in an authentic way, people will understand this. They will feel it. They know that you're not doing it just because you want to brag about yourself. Mm -hmm. And if you are a company and you have multiple people that have that kind of personal branding, there are companies that don't take it in a positive way. You know, they are not happy of this because, oh, this this guy or this woman that is bragging about herself, himself, and building their personal branding. And there are others that are more enlightening that understand instead the value of something like this. What is the value? Well, once again, these companies are like a black hole out there. You know, you just see the big corporation with hundreds of millions of, or billions in our case, or revenue and hundreds of thousands of people. And you forget that those 300,000 people in the case of PepsiCo are real people. You know, they're like your mother, like your father, like your kids, like they're humans. And as I said earlier, they have their problems, they have their flaws, they have their dreams and desires. And so the more people you have that have that are human, 
and represent your company in a human way. Instead of regurgitating a corporate message, they use the corporate message, they integrate the message with their own life, their own experience, their own point of view, and they create their own original message that is relevant to the people out there. That's personal branding for sure. Mm -hmm. It's valuable for the people that are developing it, but it's so valuable also for the companies they work for. What I've been doing over the years creating this narrative that is Mauro's narrative, anyway, I think has been creating some form of value also for the company, PepsiCo and 3M before when I was there, because somehow myself, together with many other people inside these companies, we are humanizing these companies and reminding people out there that these companies, once again, are made by people. They want to do the right thing. The most of the time, these companies are made by people. They want to do the right thing. And there are many constraints that are invisible to many people out there. And we need to play with those constraints every day. But we are really driven by trying to do the right thing. That has been my experience in PepsiCo. has been my experience in 3M. But when I interact with my peers in other companies, I see that often these people want to do the right thing. And then there are some that really push, push, push and make it happen. And some, they don't find a way to make it happen, but they are driven by that kind of need. We mentioned earlier the post of McKinsey with the interview on my book. There is an image that they use and with a quote from me and from the book. Essentially, the quote says, innovation is all about culture. It's all about people. That post at one million impressions, as we said earlier. This is one sign out of many that I'm witnessing in the past few years of how much people in these companies care about people, about culture, about love. There is this care. They want to push this message and they love when somebody at the top of these companies is saying, this is important. So, if you listening to us right now think that love, caring, human centricity, people in love with people is important, don't be shy. Become an ambassador of this. Have your unique narrative and point of view in sharing these ideas. And by doing that, you will help your company, you will help yourself, you will build your personal brand in doing this, and you will help mostly, ultimately, also the society that we live in. Absolutely wonderful. We will stop here, but let me say that I love my audience. And the whole time we've been recording this, I've been thinking how pleased I am to be able to bring them, you, in this conversation. But also, I will say that no one is ever more enriched by these conversations, including this one, than I am. So on behalf of me, personally, Mauro, and our entire global audience, thank you so very much for this. It was just absolutely wonderful. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark, for the kind words and also for giving the opportunity to share this message with your audience. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. A quick goodbye to you from me and my wonderful team, Ken Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, Randy Yant, Anna Boynton, and my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. And until next time, I close things out with my two constant reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Mm-hmm.